Welcome to the Princess and the Bee podcast, the place to be to build your empire as queen of your body, business, and life. I'm your host, Kimberly Spencer, founder of crownyourself.com, and I'm an award-winning coach, Amazon best-selling author, and multi-passionate entrepreneur. Each week, I give you the systems, strategies, and success stories to help you master your mindset, communicate with ease, and triple your productivity so you make the income and the impact you deserve. Imagine this podcast as your weekly spark of inspiration as you take it to the next level with all the bees of your life, body, business, bank account, boys, and babies. Let's make it rain. Hello, hello, and welcome back to The Princess and the Bee. I am so excited and a little nervous to have this amazing guest as a guest on my podcast. Not only is Jessica McCann a nonprofit coach, consultant, and teacher, she has a PhD in organizational development and change, and she's the founder of Fundraise Hire, helping her clients put the fun back in fundraising. She is also a client partner with Franklin Covey. With a background in communication and change management, she started out her professional career in management consulting, learning the ins and outs of business and strategic strategic execution. She has a heart and a calling that align with her skills, talents, and heart, helping others through fundraising. She has facilitated more than 200 hours of training and has raised over over 10, I was about to say one, but holy crap, over $10 million for charity. She also is a dog mom and a baby sea turtle rescuer and is getting married to her fiance, Jim, in the spring. And she is also one of my extraordinary clients. Jessica, welcome to the show. Hi, Kim. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to be here. I've been a loyal listener from the get-go, and it's just such an honor to be here. I love that you're both a listener and a client, and now you're on the show. And so I know how you got started, but I would love for our audience to know the whole story of what led you to being a coach and a consultant for specifically nonprofits. Yeah, so a lot like most people you will ever talk to in nonprofits, I did not grow up wanting to be a nonprofit fundraiser or working with nonprofits. It's kind of a happy accident for most of us who do this work. And I'm no different than that. So I really was sort of chugging along as a management consultant, happy working for clients, um, big corporate clients, Fortune 100 and 500 companies. And I just felt this void, I should say, just an emptiness that I wanted to fill with doing good work. Um, It seems like nonprofits struggle with attracting and retaining really top talent and brilliant minds. They all go to work in the corporate world, which I was guilty of as well. And I had come across somebody who worked in nonprofits that, that sort of gave me an insider's view into it. I really didn't know much about what it meant to be a fundraiser or what it meant to be a nonprofit. And so through that personal relationship, I was able to dip my toe into this world and and really um, learn more about it. I fell in love with it. I realized that it's just as you know, challenging and intellectual and exciting as anything I've ever done, but with so much more heart and passion and personal relationships. And so it's just been an awesome, it's been an awesome ride. Now, 
$10 million for charity. What got you to that point? What, what was the greatest lesson you learned to have that level of success as a fundraiser? Yeah, that number still, even to me, um, it, it really blows me away. I'm honored to have been a part of those gifts. And that's one of the cool things about being in, in nonprofit fundraising is that you're a part of this story that's bigger than you. And so I am so honored to be a part of that $10 million. And how I got there was um, through a winding road. So my very first gift I ever asked for was for $25,000. And I choked on those words. <laughs> and I had, <laughs> it was really hard for me to even fathom that somebody would make that kind of a donation. And I remember I had a great mentor at the time who encouraged me to look in the mirror and practice saying those numbers over and over and over again until they just rolled off my tongue. And it's still, honestly, to this day, it's still an amount of money that I aspire to be able to give to charity someday. But but it really wasn't about me in that particular act. So the $10 million is really about, you know, the people who I've been able to connect with great causes and you know, they had a heart for service. So, so it happens one ask at a time, one donor at a time, one connection at a time. And then one day you look back and, and it adds up. And $10 million later. <laughs> Ten million <laughs> change lives, which is the yes. better part. That's the big, that's the big extraordinary part is how many lives that impacted. And you touched on something that I, I really want our listeners to really hear. You said connections and relationships. How valuable have the connections and relationships been? I know you can't really quantify it with even a dollar amount, um, but what is, what is the purpose of connection and relationships in fundraising and in sales? This is probably my most favorite topic to talk about when it comes to nonprofits and fundraising, because I think this is the biggest myth when it comes to fundraising. Um, I talk, I have the, the pleasure of working with a lot of nonprofits, some that have professional fundraisers and some that have volunteers. Probably a lot of you listening will raise money for some cause that you care about in some kind of way at some point in your life. And the biggest myth that I always come across is that people are very ashamed to ask for money or they are, they feel guilty for asking for gifts. And the coolest thing about fundraising and about nonprofit work is that it's really not about the money. It's really about the connection with people. And you know, there's a couple of really common phrases in fundraising, which is, you know, people give to people. And they, you know, they don't really give to a cause. They give because of a relationship, because they care about you and you've asked them, because this cause means something to you and you've asked them. Or you've cultivated that connection where they now feel a personal relationship with whatever you're doing. So, so not $1 can ever be raised if it's not in connection with a human being. And, and that's the part that I think is so interesting is that it, it's really not about finding the rich people or finding the causes that everybody loves to give to you. It's really about cultivating connection. So it's had a tremendous impact 
on my career, my success, and, and quite frankly, the joy that I have in this work is because of those relationships. I'm proud of the dollars, certainly, but I'm, I really treasure the people I've been exposed to. Can you share with us what is one of the most profound experiences that you have had as a fundraiser, um, con- making those connections between either a donor and a cause or a donor and a scholarship? What is the story behind that, that that you felt really privileged to be involved in? This is a story, I've shared it with you before, but it, it is always the first one that comes to mind when I think about just the impact on me as a person that this has happened, this, that this career has had on me. And it's a story of a family who lost a child unexpectedly. Um, he was in his early teenage years and the family was devastated. But one of the things that this student loved was he loved political science of all things. So I really connect with that, but loved <laughs> political science and government and history and for them giving a scholarship in his memory that would help other students that would come along after him and create a legacy in his memory so that his name went on and on into perpetuity and helped other students be exposed to the kinds of things that he loved gave this family such comfort and gave so many future students i mean so far there's been probably 10 or 15 students who've had that scholarship and will continue to have many, many more into the future. And that was really the first time that something clicked in my mind where I was like, you know what, really, you know, part of my job is to ask for gifts and ask for scholarships. But the part that they don't tell you about is that you get a chance to be a a participant in this particular moment in people's lives, whether it's helping them find hope at the end of a really tragic experience like this one was, but there's still so much joy that comes from that act. Um, that family's been able to connect with those students who have the scholarship in their son's name and be able, been able to mentor and have relationships and just what an awesome honor it is to be a part of that process is probably one of the more profound experiences that I've had in this career. Just seeing the magic that can happen when people that have um, a heart for service and people in the role of fundraisers who have a heart for doing good by their donors and by their cause come together. It's, it's amazing what can happen. So that's been the most profound experience that comes to mind. As a child, did you dream of doing something like coaching, consulting, and teaching and fundraising for, for others? Were you like rallying the neighborhood kids to, to sell lemonade for the American Heart Association? <laughs> Not at all. Not at all. In fact, I started much like most people do and most um, fundraisers that I, that I speak with where because of my activities in school, I had to do fundraising for you know, the events that I was in, cheerleading or Um, academic competitions, you're always having to do something. And I hated it. (laughs) I did not like doing it. Um, But what I wanted to be back then was a news reporter and, and more specifically an investigative journalist. And part of that was because I was fascinated by the stories that people have and fascinated by 
the fact that we're all sort of living these parallel lives that intersect at certain times. Um, and that to me was, was the dream. And the cool thing is when I look back, I really think that what I do now still is in keeping with that passion. I mean, fundraising is all about storytelling. Fundraising is all about learning about why people tick the way they do and what matters to them and what are the intersections that are going to mean something to them um, that cause them to want to get involved. And so, so even though I'm not a news reporter, uh, I was voted most likely to be the next Diane Sawyer <laughs> in my high school. But, you know, now here I am, I think, still doing that work in a different kind of way that I never could have imagined back then. So I know that in the nonprofit space, um, we had Rebecca Tankersley from the Lions Heart Club on last week, and she shared about how there are so many women, specifically in the nonprofit space. Have you found that being a woman has helped or hurt you as, as a fundraiser? Or did it matter? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think to the extent, I try to be careful not to be too stereotypical, but to the extent that it's true that women are great listeners and question, to, you know, and askers and great relationship builders, it's a, it's a great benefit to be a woman. Um, I happen to be a woman that has those kinds of natural tendencies. Not all of us do, but, um, but I happen to be one that does. And so for me, that's been really a positive thing. That's because I, you know, in some ways, because I'm a woman, I think people have opened up to me, both other women and men. Um, I do think there's a little bit something about, you know, a man who's willing to share personal stories or memories or things that matter to them to a woman versus another man. So there've been things like that, that I think have been a definite benefit um, for sure. And then there's kind of the other side of that coin as well, which is that nonprofits, um, not unlike sometimes the rest of the world, tend to have a lack of women in leadership. Yes. In organizations. And so, you know, the challenge of being a woman in nonprofit is that sometimes I've looked around and and not been able to find females in positions that I aspire to and that can mentor me or give me advice or um, champion me in the boardroom kinds of situations. And yeah. Which is probably a part of why I, I felt so passionate to do what I do so that, you know, to help develop women leaders in nonprofits. I love it because yeah, Rebecca backs backs that up the whole way of that in the in the leadership positions there are not very there are mostly 80% women volunteers but in leadership positions not as many as there are men and I personally think that whomever is best qualified man or woman should be the one getting the job. For sure. For sure. So, that's been my experience too. Yep. Yeah. So what, what would you say is one quality that, that men in, in the fundraising and nonprofit industry could really learn from women? That's a great question. The thing that immediately came to mind, and again, I'm, you know, I'm totally sensitive to the fact that some of this stuff is broad brushstrokes, but um, one of the things that 
in my conversations with fundraisers, particularly men fundraisers that has come up before is that um, men more than women, in my experience, feel the need to talk a lot and to present and to be super polished and to um, fill the space with words. <laughs> and, and that's you know, really interesting. Right. Well, it's like part of that executive presence, right? They, they really want to bring the knowledge to the table. And one of the things that's so important about fundraising is that it's certainly you have to have fiduciary responsibility and you've got to be able to demonstrate the business behind what you're doing. I get all that, but so much of it is asking great questions and then holding space for people to connect for them to dip into a memory or, or dip into an experience that's similar. And, and women tend to do that better than men in my experience. And so that's something I think men could really learn from is to, you know, be more curious and to hold the space. Ah, I love that because as, as you know, from our own coaching experiences together, um, that's like what a coach does. It's asking great questions and allowing that space for the client to fill in the answer. So what would you say are some of the greatest questions that you have asked that have allowed for epiphanies from either donors or your clients or, um, or the, the charities that you are, are seeking to align with? So if I knew you were going to ask this question, I have this raggedy old fire file folder that is like full of questions <laughs> over the years. But some of the ones that I think have opened people up the most, the ones that really get people sharing a lot about themselves are forward thinking ones that get them to dream about the future. So, you know, what's the, what's the impact that you want to make in the world? What's the difference that you can make in your community that would be meaningful to you? Those kinds of things that get people imagining, envisioning the future, it, just in the course of answering that question, they'll tell you a lot about their past and their values and what's important to them. Um, but it's also a thing that gets them creative and excited. So those kinds of questions are always my favorite. I, those questions are always my favorite too, <laughs> as you know. <laughs> so looking at, at the experience of being a coach and having a coach, what is the benefit that you believe coaching has provided you that's, that's been able to enhance in some way your own coaching practice? Oh my gosh. I just, I can't say enough good things about being a coachee as a coach. Um, and probably the first thing that comes to mind is that as a coach, you are giving so much to the client, your attention, your, your focus, it's all about them. And um, for me as a coachee, it feels so good for somebody to do that for me because I've got my own stuff I'm working through. I've got my own, you know, fears and concerns and things that I'm trying to um, level up in my life. 
And so having a person that holds that space for me to think through things and for me to really make these personal discoveries that in the course of a busy day, the average person's not think, you know, or if I, if I'm average, I'm not thinking about them. And so that's been, I think the most powerful part of being a coachy for me. And then of course I notice when my coach, you, does <laughs> And, you know, so I've borrowed some of the things that I think really worked for me or the aha moments that I've had. I'm like, oh, yeah, that was really powerful. Um, that's a great learning. That's a great contribution. I'm, I want to incorporate that into my coaching. So obviously you get, I get skill development from it. But more importantly, I get the, the great benefit of, of being listened to and heard and supported. Well done, stealing my questions. <laughs> Good job. I love that. Um, why did flattery? <laughs> absolutely the highest form of flattery. I I so appreciate it. Steal away, girl. Um, <laughs> why is it important, especially for nonprofit leaders, to receive coaching and consulting for their for their nonprofit's growth? So more than, you know, all professionals, all people, I think, I truly believe can benefit from coaching, but especially nonprofit leaders and fundraisers and volunteers need coaching. And I, and I mean that wholeheartedly. And part of that's because um, not only is this a professional kind of an organization or it's, you know, it's a business in some way, it's not for profit, but it does have a balance sheet and it's got strategy and decisions and leadership and all those kinds of things. So it's got all of that, but nonprofits also tend to have a lot of emotional work that goes in to what people are doing day to day. And, um, it's one of the industries that have some of the highest burnout rates. Um, it's got some of the highest, um, depression rates among leaders and it's really an emotionally taxing kind of a thing to do. So, you know, one of the things that I think is so important is to have coaching so that nonprofit leaders can unpack what's going on, where they can separate out, you know, because some of these clauses are tough subjects. I mean, a lot of times the clauses are, are you know, difficult kinds of things to live with day in and day out. And yeah. so having space where you can unpack those feelings, sort of separate yourself from the cause and hold both of them at the same time and then still, you know, level up your skills and, and um, oh, and let's also be honest that nonprofit fundraising, one of the realities is, is that you are going to hear no a lot more than you hear yes. So developing your own resilience and grittiness so that you can keep bringing that energy day in and day out is so important for people that work in nonprofit. How has resilience played a role in, in your own experience with fundraising? Well, I love it so much. I wrote like a 300 page dissertation on it. So, <laughs> so there's that. <laughs> um, resilience, in my opinion, is one of the most important muscles that we in today's day and age can develop it's just it's sort of being bred out of us a little bit by the the urgency of our lives and by 
our sort of instant gratification culture. Um, but it's the key to long-term success in anything that we do anywhere. So the grit and resilience piece, particularly for nonprofit leaders who have an emotional connection to the work that they do, who really care, who see the faces of people who not only are investing in solving a problem, but oftentimes they also see the people who receive the benefit, um, being able to to come back day after day to do the hard work. A lot of times the behind the scenes work. I mean, everybody loves to go to the big, um, you know, the galas. Exactly. The yeah. Galas, the unveiling, the time that we hand out, you know, whatever the, the beneficiaries are going to receive that those things are really fun and meaningful and they will sort of refresh the well. But what about the, the boring, tired days where you're slogging through emails and you're calling and you're getting hung up on. And, you know, those are the days that you really have to have that strong sense of purpose and the gritty muscle. And it, that's really all it is, is a muscle. So it, it's been important for me because I've had to develop it. I, you know, didn't, it's not a natural born trait. <laughs> so it's something yeah. that I had to grow and develop and pay attention to. And it's, you know, now as I'm working with other fundraisers, I'm teaching them how to develop that muscle and, and get stronger. And it, you know, it shows up in all different areas of my life at these, these days. <laughs> what is the difference between theorizing about resilience and from experiencing it from a very scientific background, as like you said, with your dissertation versus the actual in the nitty gritty in the trenches of the experience of, resi uh, of resilience. What have you experienced is the difference and what are the pros and cons for both? You probably know about my experience about as well as I do, because we've talked a lot about it. <laughs> I know about your experience with resilience, but I would love for you to share some of the resilient experiences that you've had that have really shaped you as as a, a coach as a consultant as a teacher what are, what would you say would be the the favorite i call it the your favorite failure that you that just strengthened that resilience that got you back up and and brought awareness or it, it brought you connection in some way you had the most powerful learning lesson from that from that problem or whatever it was that you were resilient in going through mm -hmm. yeah on paper grit and resilience they sound great and they seem pretty straightforward and easy but in real life it's really freaking hard <laughs> yeah it's messy and it doesn't always feel um you know, as scientific. And so for me, one of my favorite failures is actually pretty recent to me. So there's kind of two that come to mind. I've, I've been living this path of being gritty for about the past 15 months where, you know, I've launched a business. I've gone out, started a coaching practice. Oh, and by the way, I have a day job that sort of had its own ups and downs and roller coasters. And so you know, living that day in and day out and, and feeling, um, feeling the doubt and the disappointment has been such a great learning experience for me. And I've, I've kind of come out on the other end of that tunnel and thank goodness I had the forethought to 
get involved with somebody like a coach who could help me sort of process through and work through and think through these things and challenge me. Um, but now on the other side of it, I'm looking back and realizing, wow, I am so much stronger now than I was this time last year because I've actually tried things that didn't work, had to regroup, try something else. <laughs> it had to tweak that. Um, I've gotten lots of no's in the past few years. And so um, learning how to interpret that as a um, no is not never, no is not now. And that, I've seen that play out in my, in my business, with my clients over and over and over again, that people that told me no 18 months ago are now my clients. Or people that told me yes! It is so, so true. And part of it was just doing the small choices every day to keep trying, keep putting stuff out there, keep adding value, keep serving. And it comes back around. So that's been, you know, the biggest lessons that I've learned in sort of taking the theory into my real life is to just take my own medicine. And, and it's, it's true. It works out. Resilience is key. Oh, it, Ed Milet had one of the most fantastic podcasts on if you are not celebrating on a daily basis um, your own resilience on the fact that you got up today and you decided, you know what, I'm going to go at it again. I'm going to swing at that pinata again, and I'm going to keep swinging until the candy comes out. And every day you make that decision, sometimes every hour, depending upon the type of day that you're having. Um, but it, when you make those decisions to get up, to get back, and, and Jessica is such an amazing testament to that because I have seen her over the course of, of a year and I just want to champion her for a hot second because she has gotten up again and again and again. Um, and, and the resilience that she has built, it has created this beautiful light of, of confidence that she has now and that you can hear as she's speaking to you about how good she is at what she does. And she wouldn't have had that had she not had built that resilience at, as a daily practice. That's how courage is built. Absolutely. One of the practical things, Kim, you, you said something that reminded me of this. One of the things that sort of in the, in the, Valley that I figured out is um, I started looking at my numbers and figuring out how many no's I had to get before somebody said yes to a meeting or yes to a proposal or something. And so I started celebrating the no's on the way to the yes. And that number is different for everybody depending on what they do. But I literally would put a check mark on my you know planner for that day and just keep track. How many no's did I get? And sure enough, like clockwork, you know, for me, that number was like 25 to 30. But in that range, if I would just kind of get to that number, I get a meeting or I get something, some movement, positive sign of life. Yes. <laughs> and so, you know, it's a simple thing to do, but just counting down the no's and, and celebrating them as if they are one step closer to success because they are. And I love the fact that you did that because so often, so many leaders, whether you, whether you have your own business or whether you're a nonprofit leader or whether you're uh, going out for job interviews, whatever it is, we, we put our, 
our onus in, we put the emphasis on the feeling of how we feel necessarily that day. But I love the fact that Jessica brought it back to the data, because this is something that if you work with me, you will know, like when you bring it back to the data of how many, how many people are you reaching out to on a daily basis to connect with and expand your reach? How many people are you reaching out to for donations? How many people are you connecting with to have the possibility of having that meeting? Like when you bring it back to the data, feelings fluctuate based on the day, but the data will say what it is. And so then you can judge your feelings by the actual data that you have. And if you've collected 25 to 30 no's, you know, your, your next one could be a yes. Like that's, that's amazing. I love, I love Jessica. I'm so proud of you. So yeah. freaking like related to the data that it was, that's so important is that when you think about fundraising or asking for sales or you know, whatever it might be, when you're close to a deadline or close to you, know, when you start to feel that need for it, the emotion of getting told no is heightened because it's kind of more important. So I think for me, the other thing was important to like, do the small things every day. Reach out to the 25 every day. Because if I just wait and do 100 at the end of the week, then the emotional, you know, it's heightened the pain of the no if there is such a thing. And so it was kind of the small daily choices too that were data-driven. I love that. Oh, I could, I could spin off on that on like for days because it's that, that alone just shows the testament to resilience and grit because there was, um, there, uh, there was an, I forget where I learned it. Either it was one of my mentors or my coach, but there was an expedition that was going down in Antarctica. And I believe it was the first one that it was ever done. And there were two groups. One group said that they would go every time at 20 miles per day no matter what and no matter whether the, whether the weather was good or bad or it was awful I mean it's Antarctica and then there was another group that said they would go for uh, you know when it when the weather was good and they would go for as long as they could on that day like kind of like you know doing that hundred on that day that you feel good but not doing that incremental 20 which one was the one that reached their destination that finally went and traversed all of Antarctica it was the one that did 20 a day, not the one that did 100 on the day that they felt good because feelings are subjective and they fluctuate. But 20 a day, having those measurable numbers to hit, it really changes the game in any business that you're in. So what was it your background in academia that really drew, uh, drove you to be so data-driven? I don't think so. I think that's kind of how my brain works. I think being data-driven drove me to academia. <laughs> yeah. Because um, I love, but, but I'm kind of, you know, I actually am a qualitative studier. So I love the story behind it. I love to find patterns and truths, and I love to pull essence out of what people's stories are. But I love the story. So, um so I like them both. I use them both. So what does, what does stepping up and stepping out to make a difference for nonprofits really mean for you? Like how could more people step up for nonprofits or for causes that they care about? I think the first thing is a mindset thing. So, you know, people, whether you're a volunteer, whether you're starting out as a fundraiser, 
or very experienced. Our mindset has such impact over the things that we do. And we've already been talking about it, but excellence is this combination of small daily habits. And so, you know, anytime that I'm feeling like I'm dragging or I'm not really elevated to that place where I know I can be or should be, I, or not should be, but want to be, I'd like take a step back and look at what's my mindset. What are my daily habits? What am I doing in other areas of my life that's, that's doing this? So I think, you know, to truly step up in nonprofits, it's really about getting your mindset right, you know, getting the daily habits and routines that, that allow you to sort of show up in your, you know, best, most loving service oriented self. And then, you know, the rest is never straying too far from the relationships, the people, the, um, you know, the, the humanity that this is all about. And that's for me been the life source of being, you know, involved in this work is that it's really about making these differences and it's awesome to see you know, the change, the impact. I think I've had a greater impact on the world by being a part of some of these things that I've done in nonprofit space than I ever could have done on my own. So coming together collectively, you know, if you want to go fast, go alone, but if you want to go far, go together. I love that. Yes. (laughs) And so on, on that note of habits, of the daily habits that set you up for service, what are some of yours that you've found to be really success making? So my success-making daily habits um, start out with some sort of mindfulness. And I've experimented with different kinds of practices. Um, right now, meditation and yoga, combination of those two, work best for me. So, um, so doing that daily. And I, and I switch it up sometimes in the morning, sometimes at night. But that's sort of a daily must-have. Um, and I'll be honest with you, some days it's two minutes, some days it's 20 minutes, just kind of <laughs> in the monkey mind. But um, so that's part. The other thing I do is um, I'm, you mentioned in my bio, I'm a dog mom. So taking my dog out for walks is a way that I decompress throughout the day. So rather than let the pressure build up all day long and then at the end of the day, I'm just exhausted. I sort of, you know, release a little bit of pressure throughout the day by going on a walk with my dog or taking a walk around the office, going to get you know, drink of water, um, those kinds of things. So that getting up and changing my physiology from every now and then is another thing. And then, and then I try to take care of, you know, speaking of physiology for me, like the biggest predictor of if I'm going to do the things I know I need to do and and want to do. I've got to have enough sleep. I have to not be hungry and I've got to be, you know, moving my body. So to me, those are the things that are the non-negotiables. Amazing. Why is that so important? Why is it so important for nonprofit leaders in particular to have that sort of oscillatory cycle throughout their day? The important, well, it's important because you are moving from, typically you're moving from you know, one donor conversation to another donor conversation to a strategy planning. And you have probably been told no at least some point in the day. And so if you're asking enough, you're getting told no at least daily. (laughs) (laughs) And if you're not getting told at least least daily, you're not asking enough. (laughs) 
That's right. (laughs) Yeah, for me, the movement and sort of having these pockets of different activity in the day help me release whatever's happened earlier and be totally present for this new meeting. Every new meeting is a new opportunity for a yes. It's a new donor with a new background. So I don't want to bring the baggage from the last conversation. Not even that it's that negative of baggage, but just want to be totally fresh and in the moment with this person so that we can connect. And I think for nonprofit leaders, that's so important. So as you move from one conversation to the next, so to kind of get that mindset wiped clean and ready for the next thing so that you can make the best decisions possible in the, in the moment. What are some of the harder decisions that you've had to make uh, working with nonprofit leaders or while you were working in the nonprofit space? Um, well, the hardest decision, I think, for anybody in today's world, not even just people in nonprofits, but especially nonprofits, the hardest decision is what to do with my time. You know, I've got a finite amount of that resource and you've got almost unlimited things that you could do. And so choosing your priorities and choosing my, you know, the things that I'm going to spend time on is, has always been the most difficult decision. So trying to balance, you know, in reality, there's some donors that can give more than others. There's some that are more likely than others. And you've got to balance those, but then there's some that are just so incredibly meaningful, or it's a gift that proportionally means so much to this particular person that in my opinion, it's never been the right choice for me to just rank them and take the, only the top. You know, it's been, how do I get meaning and impact and value, you know, all together and balance those things to choose what to do with my time. And then also prioritize taking care of myself. I've not always been so good at that. So making that choice um, to prioritize the things that I need to do to renew my own wellspring of energy has been hard. Yes. It's worth worth working on. So, so essential though, because the ground floor of anything, whether it's, whether it's your own nonprofit or your, your own business or your career is you and those basics as, as, my mentor Brendan Burchard always says common sense is not always common practice. And so as much as you may know to take care of yourself, when you look at the data of how often are you actually getting your exercise, how much sleep are you actually getting, how well are you, are you nourishing your body, and how often are you taking those little breaks throughout the day to allow yourself to go outside, go for a walk, get some vitamin D, hitting your pituitary gland, like (laughs) do a meditation, clear your mind, allow yourself to have that space so that then you can face the rest of the day. That's why your performance is so founded on, on the basis of you. I always try to think about that old fable or it's a nursery rhyme or something, the goose and the golden egg. And so I'm always thinking about, you know, I, So, you know, the goose is the one that produces the golden egg and the parable goes that the farmer, you know, kills the goose so he can get all the eggs at once. And when he opens it up, there's no golden egg. And then he realizes, uh uh-oh, the goose produces the egg every day and I got greedy and now there's no eggs. So I think about that a lot in terms of, okay, what am I, please don't kill my goose today, Jessica. So how do I balance production with my production capability? And I've got to continue to nourish my capacity to do work 
so that I get, you know, don't get in a golden egg situation. <laughs> yeah, you got to keep that goose alive and thriving and healthy and popping out those golden eggs every day. And I also love the fact that you use that analogy because it speaks back to the compound effect, like you said, of doing the 20 a day, that reaching out to 20 people a day rather than saving it all to the end of the week when you have 100 to reach out to. Um, because in that way, it it speaks volumes to just the, the little incremental habits that you have every single day. They compound. There's a great book called The Compound Effect. We'll list uh, link to that in the show notes. Um, that's really powerful and speaks to exactly what Jessica was talking about of do the 20 a day instead of waiting for the 100. Do the little things per day. Like you can't go out and run a marathon 26.2 miles at the end of the week if you haven't built up that resilience along the way. So what what is your biggest, most actionable tip that you would just love to drive home for every nonprofit leader out there um, that you would just, are, would, would stand on your soapbox for days and preach about? That is, oh, that is such a tough question, but a great one to think about. Um, the tip that I would, the most actionable thing is that, is that I, that there must be a balance between preparation and action. So, so many nonprofits in general get locked into, you know, we've got to have the exact right campaign with the right plan, with the right people, the right asks, the right opportunities. And there is a certain amount of preparation that goes into any meeting or call or conversation that you're going to have, 100%. But don't let that become so paralyzing that you never do anything or that you never start the conversation because you feel like you never have enough data. So most nonprofit leaders have a pretty good sense and idea of where they're going, what they want to do. If not, I can help you with that. <laughs> but once you've kind of got that, you know, lined out, it's time to take action around it and do some basic preparation to have conversations, but get out and have the conversation. And most importantly, share why you care about it and why they should care about it. Um, I, think that, I think that held me up for so many years, really trying to do all this background research on every single person that I talked about, when, or talked to, I should say, when really the most important thing I could have done was pick up the phone and called and ask them, you know, why they might care about this certain thing. And that would tell me everything that my hours and hours of research um, did. So, so I'm a firm believer in do a little research and then act. Well done. As Mel Robbins says, five, four, three, two, one, just do it. <laughs> just take action after five, four, three, two, one, go. Um, looking at that, looking at taking action, what is what are the action steps that normally nonprofit leaders miss or or don't do enough of? Because as you know from from our coaching together, uh, my big topic is like productive procrastination, where you're doing things that are in essence spinning your wheels. So, what are the common wheel spinners that you've seen nonprofit leaders get caught up in, and what could actually they be doing instead that's driving traction? And creating that traction for them to actually move forward and faster. The biggest, this is 
hands down, the biggest wheel spinner of most nonprofit leaders is that they are so focused on the cause or the donors or the beneficiaries that they forget their teams. They forget to invest in the people around them and support and mentor their coworkers and their, their teams that are carrying out this hard work day in, day out, the volunteers. So one of the things that we know in nonprofits is that people burn out quickly. They tend to not stay long. The average tenure of a nonprofit fundraiser is about two years and, and it's moving in the wrong direction. And that's just about enough time for them to kind of get up to speed and get some relationships started. So they leave before they ever really get productive. And we know also that the biggest part of that is has to do with their leader or their mentor or their manager and feeling like they're unsupported. And when you have these people who are going out there asking, they're doing hard work, they're volunteering, they're giving of their hearts and talents. Um, the biggest thing that nonprofit leaders could do is to take the time to coach them, to mentor them, to ask them about their days, get to know them, um, in a more holistic way, a whole person kind of way, and ask them, you know, what resources do you need? What could I do to help make your life easier? And actually listen. Um, I think that's a, one of the biggest game changers for most nonprofit leaders is when they start to prioritize investing in their own internal teams, they're surprised at the production that you can really, the capacity that you can grow from spending a little bit of time internally. And you know what? That is such a beautiful parallel, Jessica, to spending that little bit of time internally on your own foundation, on your own self, to the the self of the organization is the team. Mm -hmm. And spending that time investing in the team, in the body of the team, it automatically catapults you to much, much more sustainable success. So let's get into a little rapid fire, shall we? Let's do it. All right. All right, Jessica. Who is your favorite female character in a movie and why? Favorite? Okay, Elle Woods. (laughs) Oh, you got me too. Oh, I love it. Yep, Elle Woods. And I just love that character in the movie. She's so unexpected. She's so brave, resilient, stubborn. I love that about her. And she kicks ass. If you were queen of a country, what would be your prime focus? Prime focus. That's a great one. My prime focus would be, um, well, girls empowerment. I'm just so passionate about girls empowerment and raising strong, smart girls. Yes. Yes, queen. If your palace had a curse jar, meaning a swear jar, how much money would you have to put in it daily? This also depends on how much would you charge yourself? (laughs) Well, uh, pretty forgiving. It wouldn't have a lot in it, but that's because I don't charge much. (laughs) What woman would you want to trade places with just for one day? Michelle Obama, for sure. What message would you want to share with the world? That, That being kind is so easy to do. It takes no more time than being a jerk, and it just makes the world such a better place. And lastly, how do you crown yourself? I crown myself first and foremost by investing in myself. I really care about my ability to show up in the world in my true form and nature. And so I invest in myself. 
Um, and that's, I think, one of the most important things I can do. So where can we find you? How can we learn more about you? How can any of our nonprofit leader listeners come and work with you or take your courses? Where, where, where are you at, girl? <laughs> well, let me just say, I welcome that wholeheartedly. There's nothing more I love than to get in touch with people out there doing good work um, for good causes. And so some of the best ways to get in touch with me are my website, www.fundraisehire.com. Um, and then you can also find me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty active on there. Uh, my name is Jessica A. McCann on LinkedIn. PhD. <laughs> um, and then, you know, on Instagram, of course, at fundraise hire is my handle. So any of those places, I would love to talk to you about um, anything related to your cause or how I might serve you. And all of those will be in the show notes. So if you want to get in contact with Jessica, all you got to do is just look down, click down, click on show more. As always, my fellow empire builders, it is Nonprofit November, and I am so excited to, not as always, but this is, it, it is our first Nonprofit November, and I am so excited and honored to showcase nonprofit leaders and the people who are supporting these nonprofits, these powerful causes like Jessica, who are helping really change the world. I truly, truly believe that it is entrepreneurship and good-hearted, mission-minded leaders who are going to change this world and who are going to make it the most amazing, extraordinary place that it can be. Also, for the month of Nonprofit November, um, and this will be for all Novembers, Crown Yourself donates 20% of our profits to uh, the nonprofit of our choice. And so this month, it is the Children's Tumor Foundation helping fund the research for neurofibromatosis, uh, which is a genetic disorder that affects one in 3,000 children. So I want to let you know that when you choose to sign up for any of our products or programs that for the month of November, 20%, otherwise, um, on other months, it's 10%. For the month of November, it is 20%. And so feel free to shop, share, enjoy, and sign up for anything that, that strikes your fancy. Your reign is now. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If what you heard resonated with you, be sure to subscribe and share your breakthroughs and ahas with me by leaving a review on iTunes so I can keep the magic flowing your way. And if you aren't already following us on social media, come experience the extra inspiration and queenly convos on Instagram at crown yourself now, or visit our website at crownyourself.com. I am so excited to connect with you in the next episode. And in the meantime, go out there and create a body, business, and life that rules.